Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, book of Hebrews, chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Hebrews 8, 1 through 6, again, God's holy word. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain." But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. As far as the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. Let's pray. A train set, model airplanes, dollhouses, matchbox cars, a tea party set, and Legos. Now these all sound like a kid's Christmas list, maybe a little dated, but most of these are still popular for they're more the classic type of toys. For as you know, kids love to play with models or replicas of the real thing. They'll pretend to be all grown up with a fancy car, a big house, and a super fast jet. Your daughter will get blisters from her plastic high heels to look like a princess. And boys collect an arsenal of Lego weapons as if they are a marine. This is the joy of being a kid. Though like childhood, toys are only for a season. Toys are meant to be outgrown. When you're five, a tea party with empty plastic cups is great. But when you're 18, you want real china with a fine jasmine tea or Earl Grey with clotted cream. Thus, things start to get a bit weird if a kid doesn't outgrow their toys. Now, sure, to hold on to or collect toys is a fine hobby, but to prefer them over the genuine article is odd. What kid would choose his Matchbox 911 Porsche over the actual car? Well, when it comes to covenants, we find a similar dynamic. A toy versus the real thing though with much more serious consequences, that Hebrews lays before us so that we might delight all the more in our high priest, who is the real deal. So thus far in this letter, Hebrews has set forth a lot of teaching for us. He's brought up oaths and promises, the law and the priesthood, Melchizedek and Aaron, warnings not to harden your heart, and Sabbath rest. And some of these topics, as you'll remember, were a bit more on the intricate side, not elementary, but college level. Well, complexity is always uh, given a helping hand by summaries and reviews. Thus now, the author breaks it down for us with a brief review. He says, this is the main point in what we've been chatting about. A lot of things have been said, But it all boils down to this. 
Maybe you missed a few details, and yet this is the crowning affirmation, the take-home point. If you are a student in the class of the book of Hebrews, this for sure will be on the exam. And so, in the doggy bag for our faith, the author puts this. We have such a high priest. This is the point you cannot miss, forget, or take for granted. You have a high priest, and he is everything. Indeed, by crystallizing his point for us, our hearts are given a stroll down memory lane. Thus, us, so far, uh, in the book of Hebrews, we've learned a lot about our high priest. But what, or we have such a high priest, but what makes him so such? Well, the list is quite long. As you remember, first, our priest is merciful and faithful to us. His compassion is steadfast. Then his, his priesthood is apostolic. That is, he was sent by God to give us a heavenly calling. Our priest passed through the heavens on our behalf, but he is also sympathetic to us, as he suffered in every way we do, but without sin. Furthermore, our priest didn't glorify himself to take on that office, but he was appointed by the oath of God. Our priest is also our forerunner, as he entered behind the curtain above for our steadfast anchor. Moreover, this priest of ours is holy and undefiled who sacrificed himself once for our sins to become the surety of the new covenant. And finally, this great high priest is named Jesus. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, who took on human flesh. So marvelous and outstanding is our high priest, Jesus, Then let the angel choirs break forth into song, and may we join their heavenly harmony. Some truths are so wonderful and awe-inspiring, the only fitting response is to sing and glorify. And the high priesthood of our Savior definitely fits this bill. Thus, this helpful recap only makes the author want to run at the mouth more about our Lord. The greatness of our Savior causes him to overflow with more great things about Jesus. So our high priest is also one who's taken his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now this line has repeated a handful of times in this short epistle, and each time it is employed, it stresses the ascension and vindication of Christ. That is, it assumes his suffering and death to accomplish our redemption, which uh, was then vindicated and rewarded by our Lord's resurrection, ascension, and enthronement at the right hand. And yet here, it's the location that takes center stage. The heavenly real estate of our Lord's glorification is key. Now, we've learned who our high priest is... But what about where? Where is our priestly Savior? And so the author zooms in for a moment on the address of Christ. Jesus is at the right hand, which makes him a minister in the sanctuary of the true tent. Now, minister is one of the classic Old uh, Old Testament terms for the priest and the Levites, those who labor in the tabernacle 
are ministers. Next, holy places is the Old Testament phrase for the sanctuary, which included the entire holy realm of the tabernacle, which housed the very holy presence of the Lord of glory. Hence, Jesus is a minister in the sacred home of God. Next, this sanctuary is also called the tent, which is the Old Testament's name for the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, which is where God drew near to meet with his people. So far then, Jesus resembles those Old Testament priests quite closely. Both are sacred ministers in God's sanctuary, and yet these similarities serve to contrast more sharply the differences. First, there's heaven versus the earth. Jesus ministers in heaven, while Aaron labeled on earth. Secondly, the author describes Jesus' tent as true or genuine, which is set over against another Old Testament name, the tent of witness. Aaron administered in the tent of witness, but Jesus ministers in the genuine tent. This contrast is not between true and false, but between typology and the reality. The tabernacle of old testified. It prophetically spoke of a sanctuary greater than itself. Its testimony was an arrow that pointed away from itself to something more real, more genuine, which is the true sanctuary in heaven where Christ ministers. And this is the first brick laid for us about the where of Jesus. He is our minister in the true tent in heaven, about which the tent of old merely testified to. And the next brick, uh, next uh, brick laid to this one is he says this genuine article, the tent, was pitched by the Lord himself and not man. This just opposes a, a, a carpenters. That is, the hands of men raised the, tab, the tabernacle at the foot of Sinai. As you remember, the craftsmen of Beelzebel and Oholiba, they were off-the-chart masters. But the best of human artisanship pales in comparison to the handiwork of God. The majesty of the Hagia Sophia cannot match the singular beauty of a lotus flower. Moreover, the craft of humans soon tarnishes rust and fades under the harsher elements of the climate. What the Lord builds, though, cannot be bleached by the sun or nibbled on by a moth. God's heavenly tent doesn't even gather dust, much less suffer the decay of this age. A God-made sanctuary far surpasses the best that men and women have to offer. But with this heavenly sanctuary dangled before us, the author makes now a side note about what priests do in the holy place. There is the place, and then there is what is performed in the place. And so he reminds us that every priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices which is true about the office of priest, whether no matter the order, be it Aaron or Melchizedek. Now, for sure, there are other tasks listed on the job description of a priest, but the main and primary purpose of a priest is to sacrifice. Now, priests are known for their purity and orderliness, 
And yet their number one job is a gory one, one of slitting throats, dissecting animals, and burning flesh into smoke. Yes, the high priest came home to his wife every night, smelling like an ashtray and roadkill. Sure, they washed a lot, but the odor of blood and smoke never came off of them. And so a priest is for sacrificing, and thus it is necessary for them to have something to offer up. A cook needs ingredients, carpenters needs wood and nails, and so a priest must be armed with sacrifices. And this is an important truth uh, for us to learn well. For too often in Christian theology, priests are wrongly implied to be optional. And more so, sacrifice is talked about as unnecessary. And this misunderstanding comes from a poorly read verse, which shows up a few times in Scripture. This is the verse that says, The Lord desires mercy, not sacrifice, or the Lord requires obedience and not sacrifice. And you may have heard this verse explained as meaning that God doesn't really care about or even want sacrifice. But this is not the correct understanding of this verse. Rather, this verse is a polemic against a pagan understanding of sacrifice that was prevalent among the Israelites. This verse condemns idolatrous abuse of sacrifice and not sacrifice itself. Instead, sacrifice is an absolute requirement demanded by God and had to be performed by the priest. For at the end of the day, priestly sacrifice is actually about justice. Hence, God filled the book of Leviticus with required sacrifices. And sacrifice was a matter of obedience. Thus, no sacrifice was acceptable without obedience, and there was no full righteousness without proper sacrifice. Moreover, the necessity of sacrifice betrays the truth that we are all under the debt of sin. Before God, especially to draw near to God, we are at a deficit, stained with impurity and guilt. The sacrifice was the necessary payment demanded by holy justice. The sacrifices expunged the debt and pollution of sin. And the sacrifice appeased God's wrath to win his favor for forgiveness. Therefore, the necessity of sacrifice is central to biblical truth, and so is the priesthood to offer them and the holy place required to slaughter them. And with these three necessities set forth, now the author relates them to Jesus. If he was on earth, he says, then he wouldn't even be a priest. Again, location is in the four. Now, initially, this seems better. Jesus be a priest on earth? How great would that be? For if Jesus was on earth, then we could go visit him. We could see him face to face and listen to him with our own ears. Now, this sounds tasty, but our first impression misses the mark. For if our Lord was on earth, then he wouldn't even be a priest. No priestly office was open to him down here. 
he wouldn't even be hireable as a priest. Now, this is a stark statement, so how is this the case? Well, simply put, the law. Those who offer sacrifices in the temple do so according to the law, and the law forbids anyone from being a priest except one of Aaron's sons. The God-given law allows only the blood of Aaron to put on the priestly mantle. And Jesus was of the line of David. Now, sure, as Lord, Jesus possessed authority over the temple complex. But as a man with his Judean heritage, this excluded him from the priesthood in the Jerusalem temple. And it's in this truth that we sense a possible correction. That is, the saints of this epistle here are tempted to go back to the Old Testament rites and practices. The smells, bells, and whistles of the temple and that of the lofty priest is alluring to them as something more concrete, more ancient, and so more effective. And you can hear one of the uh, saints trying to compromise. Okay, Jesus can be priest, but let him serve in Jerusalem. They will give up on Aaron, but the holy temple must still be the location of the priestly ministry. And so the author counters this objection by saying, nope, it doesn't work. The law prohibits a Judean from being a priest. Moreover, the earthly sanctuary is a mere copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The temple that the Hebrews thought so highly of that they adored above all else is not all that it cracks up to be. They considered the temple to be the real deal. But in actuality, it's only a replica. Now, by copy here, it means that the tabernacle is a miniature model, a diorama, a mock-up prototype. It's like a Lego set of the Eiffel Tower, a small representation of the real thing. Furthermore, the tabernacle or temple was a shadow. And shadows are not fully clear, but they're a dark outline, a black and white sketch without the clarity of color. Shadows are also quick to pass and ephemeral. And so, to prove his point, the author quotes from Exodus 25 that we read. That is, when Moses ascended Sinai and entered the glory cloud, the Lord made it clear. He showed Moses a visual pattern or blueprint that Moses was to recreate on earth in the tabernacle. Now, of course, the summit of Sinai, wrapped in glory, is a manifestation of heaven. And so Moses saw a picture of the heavenly sanctuary, and then he replicated it on earth in the tabernacle. This means, then, from the very beginning, the tabernacle was never the real deal. The genuine article of the sanctuary was always in heaven, and the earthly tent was a shadowy toy. And this truth comes directly out of the Old Testament text. The author is not giving a new teaching here, but he's stating what is obviously taught in Exodus. Thus, as you go through the tabernacle's features in Exodus, the heavenly imagery is all over the place. God was enthroned above the ark. 
The veil was embroidered with stars and angelic cherubim. The menorah lamp imaged the light of God's face. The tabernacle was a copy and type of the heavenly sanctuary come down to earth. And in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, then there were two uh, temples, a heavenly one and an earthly replica of it in Jerusalem. And this truth was widely found in the Jewish literature of the day. In the intertestamental literature and in the rabbinical text, the two-temple idea is well represented. And so the author uses this Old Testament truth, which was commonly held to, against the saints who are tempted to go back. You want to go back to the temple? But the earthly sanctuary was a shadowy diorama of heaven. It was a toy model compared to the reality. Why would you stay with the toy when you can have the real thing? This makes no sense, and more so, it's harmful. Yet there seems to be another polemic here. In the Jewish literature that spoke about this heavenly temple, there had to be workers in this celestial sanctuary. The Aaronic priests served on earth, so who served in heaven? Angels did according to the Jewish literature, that is. Yes, elaborate angel ideology grew up around the idea of this heavenly sanctuary. And the Jewish sages speculated about all sorts of angels laboring in this heavenly tent. They even posited that angels sacrificed in heaven. As Aaron brought bloody gifts on earth, so the angels did in heaven above. Yet under this system, you then had two priestly mediators, one of the sons of Aaron and secondly angels. And your prayers had to pass through both intercessors, a human and an angel. And this idea had legs for it influenced Roman Catholic theology. Yes, under Rome, you pray through an earthly priest And then in heaven, you pray to apostles, martyrs, and other saints who are are like angels. Many are the mediators in both Roman and Jewish theology. Moreover, to make these concepts workable, they developed whole schemes about angels, who they are and what they do. But this boils down to the influence of paganism. Indeed, even in the Old Testament, angelology was excluded from orthodoxy. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, angels play zero role. In fact, it's paganism that has entire ranks of lesser divine beings. But under Moses, you had access to God himself through Aaron. Thus, even with the limits of Aaron, you still had an avenue to the Lord. Thus, your prayers didn't have to go through dead saints or angels. Indeed, to pray to angels or ancestors fell under the condemnation of idolatry. Thus, Hebrews brushes all of this aside when he asserts that Christ obtained a better ministry. Yes, there's a heavenly temple, the genuine and eternal sanctuary, but this God-made tent is not serviced by a battalion of angels who constantly sacrifice. 
but it has one employee, Jesus Christ. You do not have many mediators to reach God, but a single one. Indeed, Jesus couldn't be hired in the Jerusalem temple due to the law, but he could be employed in the genuine article as the Son of God after the order of Melchizedek. Thus, your prayers reach the Father by Jesus alone. We pray in the name of Christ and in no other name. Likewise, you have atonement and acceptance with God in Christ. Sure, Jesus had to sacrifice as it was a biblical necessity. But his was not an endless chore of sacrificing as belonged to the Aaronic priest or speculatively to the angels. No, by his one gift of himself in heaven, Jesus made perfect atonement for you. Thus, Jesus is your single mediator. You need no other but him. Indeed, why would you settle for an angel when you can have Christ himself by faith? Furthermore, Christ's better ministry in heaven makes you part of a better covenant. Your covenant relationship with the living God is superior to that of old. And it is because the new covenant is founded on better promises. And this line links back to chapter 7, verse 11, where it was said, Israel was founded upon the Aaronic priesthood. Israel was legally constituted as God's people upon the foundation of a conditional priesthood. But you are legally constituted as God's new covenant children upon excellent promises. And a promise declares what God graciously does for you. The ironic priesthood expressed the condition of human obedience. But would you rather rest upon the, the frail works of a human or on the sure mercy of God for you? Indeed, the promise of God was actualized in Christ, who fulfilled all righteousness and sacrificed himself for you. Hence, once again, the author of Hebrews is wooing you to your Savior. As with the congregation of this epistle, many are the distractions that want to pull us away from Jesus. And the more honorable looking the distraction, the more alluring it is. To go back to Aaron and the temple, how bad can this be? For they came from God. Or to pray to angels, this just feels extra pious. And yet, the earthly tent was a mere toy. It wasn't the genuine article. It pointed to it, but it was not it. And angels, this is human imagination with no anchor in God's word. Thus, to settle for a toy or the influence of paganism leaves you without Christ and so without hope or atonement. And yet the Father has given you his very Son, Jesus, to be your priest in the heavenly tent itself. Jesus is your better and only mediator. And he has founded you on the promises of God. His sacrifice takes, uh, takes away all your sin and perfects you forever. Indeed, Christ united him to yourself and united you to God in a superior, 
unbreakable and forever covenant. And by his ministry, your prayers are perfected and carried to the Father for your benefit. Yes, Jesus prays with you and he prays for you. Thus, may we rejoice in our single heavenly high priest. And let us give thanks that he ministers for us, not in some earthly toy that will pass away, but in heaven itself. The very reality and goal of our salvation, heaven where he's bringing us to himself. So then we will enjoy him and glorify him forever.